Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Anna Greta Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Hi, Anna Greta. It's great to be here with you. Throughout this year, we've had some remarkable guests talking with us about the importance of the proposed First Nations Voice to Parliament. In recent episodes, we were incredibly privileged to have two of Australia's deepest thinkers on this issue join us to talk about The Voice, Thomas Mayo and Peter Yu. And listeners, if you haven't heard those episodes, please do check them out. They are well worth a listen. Today, in the lead up to one of the most important decisions we'll make as a nation, we're continuing our conversations about The Voice referendum. In this episode, We're looking at what some of the research is telling us about what Australians are thinking in the lead up to the referendum and what is likely to influence people in their decision of whether to vote yes or whether to vote no. Joining us to talk through these issues is Dr Rebecca Huntley. Dr Huntley holds degrees in law, film studies and a PhD in gender studies from the University of Sydney. She is Director of Research at 89 Degrees East. Rebecca is a long-term member of the Australian Labor Party, and she is one of Australia's leading social researchers who's written extensively on social trends and attitudes, including around the voice. Rebecca, welcome. It's great to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. Rebecca, maybe we could start by getting you to give us an overview of the kinds of research you've been doing, particularly around the Voice to Parliament referendum. Ah, well, <laughs> my I suppose my first foray into it was in October last year where quite a large philanthropic organisation that was going to be funding different organisations working for a yes result came to the company that I work for. So I'm, I'm the head of research at 89 Degrees East and really wanted to understand the, the scope of the challenge beyond the 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 public polls that said, you know, 72% of people vote yes or, you know, 80% of people don't know what it is. At that stage, we really hadn't had the campaign start. All we really knew was that there was going to be a referendum the following year. So we did a kind of large-scale survey that really broke people up into groups around how strongly they felt about the voice, so the kind of language that you can occasionally see now, soft yes, soft no, came from that original work that we did with Ipsos. Uh, so it was a large-scale survey. And then that's when I did the first wave, I've done many waves since then, of focus groups, which um, I love doing focus groups. That they are they can be emotionally tough on when it's 
when it's an issue that you really care about, where there isn't a lot of um, understanding, not a lot of knowledge, not a lot of knowledge, um, some anxiety. So we really started doing focus groups with people we would describe as soft yes or soft no and interested too in voters who don't have a really wide range of information they get their politics from. So it can be quite difficult to ask if somebody's, you know, are you engaged, are you knowledgeable? That can often be a very, um, you know, a very subjective, are you knowledgeable about politics? Are you interested in politics? Yes or no? There's a lot of gender stuff in relation to that. Men are much more likely to say they're engaged and knowledgeable about politics, but when you actually talk to them, you know, it's not, not, isn't always the case. So what we were really interested in as a default was getting like how much, where do you get your information? You know, how many sources of where do you get your information? So we were calling people low information voters, which sounds a pejorative, but really we wanted to understand the, the perspective of people who didn't deeply care about this issue one way or the other, weren't going to go out of their way all the time to seek out information and how did they feel about the voice. So that was our first round of that work. And then ongoing, I was involved consulting in large um, pieces of research. Um, YouGov did a big MRP, so a kind of big poll that looked at every single electorate. And then lots and lots and lots of focus groups. <laughs> and then my final piece of work um, was a whole lot of focus groups and a survey of 2,000 soft yes and soft no voters about eight weeks ago now. So, Rebecca, let's let's kind of move into some of the things that, that you've been finding through all of that. And I think that low that idea of low information voters is a really interesting and important one because I guess for some of us, we've been living and breathing this for the last many, many months. And so it's really easy to forget that this may not be the at the forefront of everyone's mind, particularly when we've got a housing crisis and a cost of living crisis and lots of other things going on around people. But Rebecca, you've you've written that there's a yawning gap between what First Nations Australians say and what non-Indigenous Australians believe, and you've pointed out that that's just like every other gap that exists between the two groups. And the YouGov research that that you mentioned found that only forty percent of non-Indigenous Australians thought that the majority of First Nations people support a voice, but another YouGov poll found that around 83% of Indigenous Australians support a voice. So we've got a real disconnect here. What is it that accounts for that massive gap? Surprisingly, a disconnect between white and black Australia. Who would have thought? On, on this one in particular, is, is there something, do you think, that's, that's leading to that gap between the, the reality and the perception? It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Look, that... so. Not only had we conducted, um, and we did this through the Uluru Dialogues and through Megan Davis, not only had we conducted surveys with Indigenous Australians to ascertain how what percentage of Indigenous Australians would vote yes, which if there's a bit of a difference between being Indigenous and loving the voice and voting yes and voting yes, but there's a nuance between that, you know, we know... And you know, I don't, I don't conduct qualitative research with Indigenous Australians. It wouldn't be appropriate. But lots of people have been doing that work. And what is clear, listening to Indigenous researchers and having looked at some of these surveys, is uh, the majority of Indigenous Australians understand what's at stake 
whether or not they think treaty should have come before voice or whether they fully think the voice is going to work or really close the gap is actually immaterial. They understand what's at stake in this referendum and that is not a broader understanding from the community about what's actually at stake. And I can, I can return to that in a minute because I've got some interesting stats on that. I think that what was clear when we were doing the focus groups in October last year is that when we asked people, do you think that this is something that Indigenous Australians want, the voice, um, only about, a th- I would say about roughly about a third of the people in the, in the survey and the focus groups as well knew that it had come from a process, knew that it had come from the Uluru Dialogues. Um, there was a sense that it had kind of, the first they'd heard of it was when the Prime Minister spoke about it. So it wasn't that they thought this is a white solution to uh, a, a, a problem of Indigenous Australians. They weren't quite sure of the origin story and that was really important. And actually telling people it came from the process around the Uluru Dialogues was really critically important. And then we kind of wanted to get an understanding of, you know, does it matter to you if you hear dissenting Indigenous voices about the voice? And actually people expected that and thought that it was, that's democracy. However, they did say, if that's all we hear, the loud and prominent voices are Indigenous Australians saying we don't want it, particularly if they come from across the political spectrum, then we're going to worry. And so at that stage, they were kind of hearing when we asked, you know, who have you heard, um, what Indigenous leaders have you heard talking about the voice? Jacinda Price and Lydia Thorpe were the two main people that people had heard from at that stage. And we realised that, that that's quite a powerful combination. Those women are very, very good communicators, really telegenic, one's left, one's right, you know, and um, it was really clear at that stage that that could give the perception or kind of like, um, uh, you know, give the appearance of Indigenous descent that would be, that was so um, marked that it might undermine the voice itself. So what was clear from soft yes groups is people said, look, in order to be confident that the voice is something that I could vote for, I want to know it's what the majority of Aboriginal people want and it's going to work because they're invested in it, right? So this kind of idea that um, that if that the voice will only have impact and only be, you know, legitimate if the majority of Aboriginal people get behind it, and so all you needed to do is kind of undermine that sense that there was this not not consensus but majority support. Nobody expects consensus. And then I think the other thing to be honest, because you know, you conduct that many focus groups and you do constantly encounter racism in all its forms, so kind of out-and-out racism and also kind of a benevolent kind of racism too, like not benevolent but kind of just condescending race, <laughs> condescending racism, which can sometimes be as bad. But often, you know, people would say, well, if, you know, Aboriginal people are constantly fighting. There's a lot of, you know, they're constantly at each other all the time and criticising each other. That's kind of idea that there's no such thing as harmony. They're not a harmonious group. And, of course, you don't have to kind of point out that it's not like anybody else is a harmonious group either, but there is this kind of, you know, really problematic, these problematic ideas. And then, of course, at that time when we were doing that work in October, it was clear that the, 
that the Sky Newses of the world, the people who were really leading the charge against the no, were starting to say things online that were filtering through the groups like, well, there's 250 language groups amongst Indigenous Australia and, you know, how are they all going to speak in one voice if there's 250 or 150 language groups? Of course, this is really fascinating to me that suddenly these people who just live on a diet of Sky News are, are, are interested in diversity and interested in language groups. There's nothing like a referendum on the voice to make suddenly, you know, these very, very right-wing people worry about those questions. So, I mean, I think that that was a really early sign that that the origin story of the voice, that it was Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander led, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander supported, right, that they that the majority of the community understood what was at stake in this referendum were critically, like, kind of cornerstones of the ongoing discussion that need to be, needed to be had. And just as an interesting aside, um, I, I haven't written and talked much about this publicly, mainly because I've just wanted the work to be used by the people who are running the campaign. Um, but of all the things I've written, that piece that I wrote for The Guardian about that is the one that we get, we just get, I get constantly trolled about that. People ringing the company, people ringing Ipsos, people who did the poll, people ringing Uluru's, what's questioning the validity of that research. Um, and so we just ignore those. <laughs> we just, I mean, all of the, the, the methodology is online. Um, you know, there's total transparency about that. But you always know you're on to a really good thing when your opponents are constantly saying that your methodology is problematic. Uh, you know, that you've made a point that they want to undermine. And it has been incredibly effective for the No campaign to say, this is not what Aboriginal people want. They haven't got any consensus. You know, amplifying those dissenting voices has, you know, been one of their effective um and of course, what it does too is it plays into this idea of the voice being about disharmony, about dividing Australians rather than about a, a unifying nation building moment, which is absolutely what it is. So they, I mean, those forces understand the kind of emotional buttons that they need to push with the people that they need to convince. Rebecca, you're reminding me again of just how much power there is in the story behind the Uluru Statement. And on this podcast, we've had the extraordinary privilege of speaking to a wide range of voices on this, including Dale Agus and Catherine Little, Peter Yu, Rachel Perkins. And just recently, we listened to Thomas Mayo speak the Uluru Statement at the end of one of our podcasts. It was absolutely spine-tinglingly extraordinary. And this is the invitation. It's a, it's a generous gift that is proposed to the Australian population. Population. It's a remarkable opportunity. Do, do you think that the Yes campaign has done enough to, to help people understand that origin story, its beauty, its complexity, uh, that, the, the beauty behind the Uluru Statement? And, and have we explained well enough what it is that's at stake behind this? One of the, the disadvantages we had is that when the Statement from the Heart came out, we just didn't have a political environment that could have elevated that moment. When it comes to communicating these kinds of things, things that people don't live and breathe all the time if you're not, if you're not an Indigenous person, it does take repetition and time to embed that. 
So really, if we think about the moment that we had the last federal election and we had a prime minister who put this on the agenda, we actually had quite a short period of time <laughs> to kind of put that on the table. When it happened, and, you know, I disclose, I disclose a, a preference here because Megan Davis and I have been friends for a long time. We were baby academics, so I taught public law very badly. I was never as good a lawyer as she was, but that's how we met. We were both teaching public law at UNSW. And when I watched her, that happen and that moment, I thought, what an extraordinary moment. But what an extraordinary story about a political moment, like to be able to rally and to, to manage that process into that moment. That is actually, that's something that most political parties really struggle to do, right? If you think about moments in public life where lots of different organisations come together to get behind a statement, it doesn't happen. And as I say that as somebody who's been involved in the Labor Party, all that Labor Party conferences are is people yelling at each other all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just a moment where I just thought that is an ex- that's a really extraordinary political moment in terms of what's been able to be achieved. And when it happened, um, there was some attention to it, but of course it was deflated by the Prime Minister at the time saying that that's going to go nowhere. And so it essentially was buried for a while, though. I would say that Uluru Dialogues were spending as much time as they can to keep that flame alive and keep on talking about it. What's clear from the focus groups is how important that origin story was as and as answering the kind of what, why, like what is it, why, where's it come from, those kind of fundamental W questions, why, where, what. And, uh, yes, I mean, it really should be, if you think about how we tell these stories that we do about national myth-making around Gallipoli or around any of the other, you know, Shearer strikes or the Matildas or <laughs> anything, anything else we want to tell stories about, which is a process leading up to a moment, you know, that should be up there. So I think we, we, we could have done better, but I think, like I said, we were hampered a bit by the political times and the, the, the oxygen that that moment was given. Rebecca, I, I just wanted to tease out a little bit more about the, the soft yes and the soft no voters and to, to get your thoughts on you know, the issues, the concerns and the messages that are influencing each of those groups. And I'd really love to hear your reflections on how people's understanding of history is playing out in the way they position themselves. You know, we we haven't been very good in Australia at either teaching or reflecting on our own history. And so there are huge gaps in the knowledge that perhaps most Australians have. Is Are you seeing that uh, lack of historical knowledge playing out? And I ask that question not to criticise individuals, but more to, I guess, reflect on the system that we have and the the lack of, of thought and education around our history. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, instinctively I thought that um, a, a campaign that was directed at this, you know, at the people who decide elections and referendums, which is not the 30% of people who I assume are all part of who are going to vote for it no matter what, but that kind of, you know, that soft yes, soft no undecided group in the middle. I, I had an instinct that leaning too heavily into the past was going to be a problem, that you had there was this balance between recognising that and there is a recognition. People talked about the stolen generation. They talked about a whole range of things, right? 
But leaning too heavily into it puts this kind of white defensiveness at us. Like that's, oh, well, you know, I wasn't around and, you know, that wasn't my fault and all the rest of it. So you have to kind of this, this very kind of gentle balance between that. And also making them and also realising that some of the most effective messages were, look, how, how we've been dealing with this issue as a nation has not been working and we need a circuit breaker because one of the things that was clear and one of the things, even though it relies very much on a deficit framing, one of the things that the closing the gap uh, approach has really shown people is like, oh, for some reason things are not moving. You know, we can have a Cathy Freeman and whatever and an Ash Barty, but for whatever reason we're just continuing to have these challenges. And the, um, the edifying thing is that, a good majority of people realised that that was not uh, a problem with Indigenous Australians, like an innate problem with them. It was that we'd had uh, a legacy of governments imposing solutions on communities without actually working with them from the beginning about what is it and knowing that those communities would have the best insight about the way forward. So that was some really, really positive stuff. The history thing is really interesting there was some historical awareness, but also some blind spots about it. So people kind of would say, oh, yes, there's all that stuff that happened and wasn't that terrible and it's really bad and there's obviously a legacy, but we need to think about the future. So there's a bit of that. One of the ways in which history, or at least experienced history, can be a problem is that, and particularly for people over 50 and over 60, is oh, aren't we so much better now? We have welcomes to country and, you know, <laughs> and, you know Aboriginal, Aboriginal excellence and we're so much better than we used to be. And so where that leads is a real problem and I kind of think uh, an underestimation of the, of the moment that we're in. And this certainly came up in the, research, in the last wave of research we did. We wanted to get an understanding of, from those soft yes and soft no voters of what they thought was at stake. And we asked them, whether they thought if the voice got got up, actually became a reality, would that be good for Aboriginal people? Would that be good for the rest of Australia? And would that be good for us collectively? About 72% of people said if the voice got up, it'd be a good thing. It'd have good impacts. Great news. On the downside, we said, um, what would be the negative impacts? And the same percentage said the status quo. People didn't, People thought there'd be all upside if it got up, but no downside if it didn't. So where I think where and and why the quality the quality of research clearly showed and people said all the time, oh we've got so much momentum. You know, there's a treaty process happening in New South Wales. There'll be one in other states. You know, there's this kind of sense that there's a there's a momentum, an unstoppable momentum around addressing Indigenous disadvantage that cannot be derailed by this. So what we've got, unfortunately, is a, oh, if it happens, great. If it doesn't, it's not. It's a speed bump on the road to progress rather than we're actually at a crossroads where we will be a different country the day after and we cannot assume that the kinds of progress or momentum that we've had will continue, including, and this was happening, this was this was employed very effectively at the end of last year and beginning of last year, it's kind of withered away a bit where, where people and groups would say, primed by the kind of Sky News commentators, except for Chris Kenny, by the way, who's a very effective uh, uh, voice for the, for the voice, 
saying, well, there are 11 members of Indigenous members of Parliament in federal Parliament. And this is fascinating. You'll find this. This is a bit of a. This is a bit of a. I haven't told this story publicly. When we were doing these focus groups in October, and people were saying there are eleven Indigenous members of Parliament. So while I was in this group, I was like googling, like, are there that many? And I googled, and it was true. And then when we were presenting this research in Parliament House to all the key members of Parliament who were responsible for the voice, myself and my outsider, we went in and. and we said, well, the yes campaign hasn't started, but the no campaign has. And people said, what do you mean? And I said, well, and we were talking to chiefs of staff and members of parliament and ministers, and we were saying to them, how many Indigenous members of parliament sit in the, in the chamber with you? Oh, I don't know, four, five, seven, 11. So even people in parliament didn't know the number, but people who watched Sky News did. So we had this kind of sense of how do we, and it's very difficult, how do we communicate the weight of history, the legacy of history? How do we come to terms with the fact that progress has been made, but that progress in the future on these issues cannot be guaranteed and can actually cycle back? Quite, it's, I haven't quite worked it out yet. This is not something that is, I mean, it's something critically important for the referendum, but it will remain important after it, no matter what happens. How do we talk about these kinds of things? It's really difficult. And as we've seen, the kind of outcry after Marshall Langton dared to say that maybe there's some racism in Australia and it's expressing itself through the, through this campaign and being stoked by some of the, you know, um, people on the no side, the kind of the vitriol is a real example of how uh, white fragility on this question. As somebody who's who has to come up with how do you message to the majority of Australians on these questions. Rebecca, it's fascinating to hear about the process that you've been through over the last year or so and the insights from that. And I think, you know, to me, one of the, the really critical issues here is the assumption that people make that if it's a no vote, then nothing changes. Whereas actually, if it's a no vote, everything changes and our possibilities towards the future become really narrowed. And I think that's such a critical part of this that that perhaps isn't getting the attention that it needs to. But we're going to take a very short break now and we're going to come back to, to talk about those issues and more in just a moment. So listeners, don't go away. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday. 
Welcome back. We're here with Rebecca Huntley talking about the voice to parliament and what Australians are thinking as we approach the referendum. Rebecca, one of the arguments against the voice is that there's not enough detail. But of course, the Constitution deals in principles rather than in detail. From the research that you've been doing over the the past 12 months or so, on this and perhaps on other issues as well, how much do most of us know about our political institutions and about our foundation document? Uh, Well, not a lot. In fact, (laughs) I mean, I was was the... um daughter of a constitutional lawyer and the first time I read the constitution was in first year of law school. In fact, I didn't even know there was a constitution. I used to be on the board of the Whitlam Institute and um, a big part of what we always wanted, we were kind of trying to advocate for was consistent civics education um, rather than just the kind of obligatory, you know, year seven trip to Canberra where all you really remember is the candy that you had on the bus to and from Um, is, you know, kind of staged across primary and high school proper civics education. Did some work actually for the Whitlam Institute with people, first-time voters, about what they, young men and women, about what they wished they had been taught at high school about voting. Um, As one young man said to me, you know, I just asked my parents about what to do and he said, and then I realised, what did they know? So, you know, I mean, the very good thing is now there's a lot of online resources, whether they're, you know, reputable or not is a whole other question. So so we don't know enough about, we don't know a lot about the Constitution. And in some ways we probably don't need to know an enormous amount about it to understand the principle of, of the voice and why it might be a good addition. I think what people clearly knew from the focus groups, and there were good and bad things about that, is that changing the constitution has been harder and harder over time. People reflected about the Republican referendum, and they realised that when we do have a chance to do it, it's kind of one shot in the locker for the next two or three generations to really do it. So so the fact that they know that it's, it, it's not that it's hard to do, but that we haven't had a lot of success, can make people feel like, right, well, I better make you know, really take this seriously because it's a bit different than voting in an election where I get a chance to kind of maybe change, you know, do something different the next time. On that question of detail, you know, as somebody who spent years doing focus groups about climate change where people say, well, I want more information, and then you go, well, should we go on to the Bureau of Meteorology or the CSIRO? I say, well, I don't want that much information. (laughs) So I, I don't talk about cow. I talk about... You know, I always think there needs to be some foundational facts. And so understanding what the foundational facts that people need to know, and really they, they're never more than what you've got on one hand for most people, right? And those foundational facts are important, but, but they're only important as part of a larger value-based story about why you should care, why this would be good, and why you can just clock your decision and not think about it again. You know, for most people, that's what they need to understand. But the narrative is important. So back to what I was talking about, where did the idea come from? Why is it going to work? You know, is, it, is this a solution in, 
in search of a problem or is there actually a problem? And I think this is why The Voice has, at least on paper, a lot more of a chance of success in the Republican referendum. And that's because somewhere between 65 to 70%, I would say, depending on the survey or depending on what of Australians know there is a problem, the origin of which is not Indigenous, you know, failure. They know that this is something where progress has stalled, where they would like to feel better about it. They would like to feel that whenever we have the closing of the gap reporting that things are moving, that we're moving away from a past that we either secretly feel ashamed of or actively feel ashamed of and we want to feel better about ourselves as a nation. So, you know, so I think... What, what we ascertained is that there didn't have to be an enormous amount of detail, but there needed to be a compelling story that connected with the values of the majority of Australians and talked in very consistent terms about the value of this to Indigenous Australians and to the nation as a whole. And then once you're able to move people through that information, they were like, okay, right? It's clear that if, and it's also clear, a really kind of, excellent delaying and denial tactic whether it's climate or anything else is well where's the detail like you know and what's the impact going to be and how can we guarantee that it's going to be successful and in some ways these are just the things that you say when you just don't want the thing to happen not because you don't have the details because you just don't want it to happen and i'll give you an example <laughs> of one i mean you know there's, I, I laugh. There's always funny stories to tell about focus groups, but one that I did in October last year in Melbourne was a really fantastic group, actually quite engaged, talking about it and quite positive about the voice as a concept. And there was a man in the group who had given them enough information and explained it well enough that the group, every time this guy was saying, well, what about this and what about this is not enough detail, they were chipping in and, and talking about it. And then um, finally he was back against the wall kind of, you know, in, in some ways, and he said, look, you know, the McDonald's down the road doesn't put bacon on its burgers because of the Muslims. And this is just, <laughs> he said, and McDonald's is the same everywhere. And uh, this is just political correctness gone mad. And he just, like, started talking about burgers at McDonald's. We'd put, he pressured him so much to kind of, you know, because everybody said, well, what about this? And somebody would give him a reason, you know, he was just, it was really ideologically and values-based. You just didn't want to give anything to anyone else, right, or be seen to be given anything to anybody else. He was somebody who kept saying, well, all we've got to do is tick the box on an employment form if you're Aboriginal and you get the job. There was that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I always was really sceptical about the detail argument. I think what people want is the is they want the... They want the hook. They want the, the reason. They want the story, the compelling story. Why should I pay attention to this? Why would this be good for the nation? Where has this come from? Where is it going? And then often once you actually have that conversation, you can get people across the line on this far more quickly than, you know, having somebody always involved in the Republican referendum because people know there has been, there is, there is a problem that they don't want to continue into the future and that it actually has a tangible impact, at least on a part, uh, directly on a part of the community and more importantly on their sense of feeling good about being Australian.
I really love that idea of narrative and using narrative as a way of taking people on the journey. And I'm particularly, I'm really thinking a lot about how uh, we think about uh, voting in a federal election on an individual basis and on a seat by seat. And just simple, this is a one question event. Uh, Rebecca, we were talking offline beforehand that neither of us have a crystal ball, and I, I, I know that, like many of our listeners, we are hoping uh, that on the 14th of October that the referendum will be a success. So I'd like to think about narrative in that in that post-referendum. If the yes vote is a success, how do you think that the government should, can bring no voters on that journey of constitutional change that will follow, particularly if the vote is close? Look, do you know what then? You know what I find about this, right? I mean, it's been 20 years listening to Australians complain about something and then when it becomes reality, just getting on with it. And, in fact, a really, really, really good example of this in current in more recent history, it's not constitutional change, the carbon tax or so-called carbon tax, which leading up to that, the focus groups were aflame with how terrible the carbon tax was going to be. The moment it hit, no one said anything. No one cared. No one mentioned it in a focus group again until we got rid of it. And just as an aside, of course, what was clear was that the carbon tax worked. The actual practical nature of it worked and it started to reduce emissions and started to give, especially emissions-intensive parts of the Australian industry, parts of industry, some certainty because they always knew at some stage it was going to come. So, so, you know, if this happens, there'll be, you know, a whole lot of naysaying about what will and won't happen, but largely the community will just get on with it. And then, of course, a big part of what the government will need to do is start to talk about the promise fulfilled. How is the voice working not only to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians, but to improve all our lives? And what was clear from the focus groups is even people who were a bit sceptical about the voice, when I said, look, can you think about an area of policy where we should be hearing more from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? They said climate, they said nature. There was a range of other things, some of our biggest challenges that face us. There is wisdom, there is knowledge, there is practices, there is the the collective intellectual and energy of Indigenous peoples who will actually help us you know, face some of these challenges. So, you know, if you're a government, you'd want to be talking about the kinds of people who are beyond the voice, how connected they are to those communities, and you'd actually want to illustrate real impact. You'd have to do that over time and, you know, be a real champion for what those voices do for us as a community more broadly. And and that would bring, you know, hopefully uh, really put to bed as much as possible that idea that elevating the voice of Indigenous Australians somehow smothers the voice of the rest of us or is somehow going to mean less for us. It could, it could mean more. In fact, it could mean a lot more. And so I think that's how we move away from the, you know, more for them means less for us, that kind of deficit framing. We start to have a much more complex idea of what it is to be Australian and what the common good looks like. Rebecca, it has been extraordinary to get some insights into what people have been thinking, you know, over the past many months as we kind of lead into this incredibly important moment in October when we vote on The Voice. And as we wrap this conversation up, 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on what advice you would give, perhaps to government and to the Yes campaign, but more particularly to individuals who support the voice and are having conversations in their families and in their communities about what this means. What advice would you give about how to speak directly to soft no voters in the final days in the lead up to the referendum in ways that bring people along rather than divide us even further? I would definitely start with the idea about saying, about kind of recognising, well, first of all, all good communication is trying to get a sense of why people are, uh, what are the barriers to their confidence for voting yes? Like what are the things that are making you anxious about voting it? Is it because you don't have enough information? Do you think it won't work? In the end, I always kind of say to people, look, I know that this comes from quite a complex process of Aboriginal people thinking about what it means, what they need to move forward, to our, for our country to move forward away from the past that we all know we feel horrible about and we don't want to think about too much because it is so horrible. How can we move towards a more prosperous, collaborative, a better communication, the kind of language of reconciliation, even though the term itself doesn't work, this kind of idea about how do we communicate, collaborate, work together for a better Australia for Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people. And then I'd say, look, I know that you would have seen that, you know, a lot of very prominent no voices to Indigenous leaders, but the reality is the majority of Aboriginal people are going to be putting yes on that ballot because they, like me, know we don't we get a once in a lifetime chance to do this. And we're not gonna be we're gonna be a different country the next day. And all the kinds of things that we've all worked towards to kind of for a great, better, more reconciled Australia, some of those things are at risk. And we think about the risk of putting this in the constitution and the risk is really, you know, there's everything every every big change carries risk. But basically what we're saying is we're going to have a situation where government cannot ignore Aboriginal people and will, when thinking about the laws and policies and programs that affect them, they have to talk to them from the beginning. What is going to work? What do you want? What are the impacts that you want? And, and that this is a mechanism to do it. It's a mechanism that's worked in other countries and it's going to work in Australia. So really kind of try and build that confidence about it being important. And, you know, the other thing I think it's important to know is, and this is where messenger of the message is really important, people see this as highly politicised, but there are a lot of conservative commentators who have come out in favour of the voice. Like I said, Chris Kenny is a really, really effective, don't agree with everything he says, but a really, really effective advocate of the voice on Sky. We've had somebody like Malcolm Turnbull, who is Prime Minister, you know, talked it down, but now is saying he thinks it's a really good idea. There are quite a lot of really of conservatives across the country, including, you know, opposition leaders, uh, you know, conservative men, judges, you know, a lot of very sober judges, not in any way, not Lionel Murphy kind of judges, but fairly, you know, conservative judges who also say it's going to work. So I think part of that is is reassuring people that this is a risk and it's not really, a, it's really not a risk, but this is a step worth taking because the status quo is not working. But, you know, in the end, I mean, I often use a very different approach depending on the person I'm talking to and depending on what is making them anxious about voting yes. 
there was a bit of evidence in some of the research that people who had been very, very sure about the voice were becoming less sure because they thought Aboriginal communities weren't behind it. They would often say, well, who am I to impose a white solution on Indigenous communities? Isn't that why we're having the problem that we're having? So saying to them, well, no, actually, <laughs> you know, they're... Um, this is something that the majority of Aboriginal communities want and that reassurance was really important. For other people, whether Aboriginal communities want it or not isn't necessarily as important as knowing that it is actually going to work and bring about, you know, real impacts and real improvements. Rebecca, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I would love to hear so much more about the work that you've been doing. <laughs> but but um, this, it's, it's time to draw this conversation to a close. Thank you so much for sharing those insights. I was really happy to, thanks. Sharon, I just thought that was a fascinating conversation today with Rebecca Huntley, partly because I always follow elections with such interest and thinking about how Australians make decisions about our political future has always been of interest to me. But the voice referendum is not just about our political decision making. I really loved the way that Rebecca described the importance of narrative in how we approach this question and how we make our decisions on the 14th of October. I think the voice referendum defines the Australian narrative and it will define the narrative for the decades that come and in ways that we can just begin to glimpse when we've been listening to the Indigenous voices speak of the Uluru Statement, what it means, why it matters and how key it is to the next steps of our relatively young colonial country as we grow up and face our future. So I thought Rebecca's conversation today was really informative as to how that narrative sits within our media landscape, within our understanding of our origin story as a colonial country, and how we can take this opportunity to really shape the next phase. Well, like you, Anna Greta, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to elections and thinking about how these things play out and um, a complete nerd when it comes to research. So I found that absolutely fascinating. But it does give us some insights into to what people are thinking and how they're approaching this really important decision. And whatever the outcome is on the 14th of October, we will be a different country on the next day or we will at least be on the pathway to being a different country on the next day. This really is a once in a generation, perhaps once in many generations opportunity. One of the, the really important things that, that I take away from that conversation is that in some ways, this is a less divisive issue than we may think. What I heard from Rebecca was that this is not about conservatives versus progressives. This is not about left versus right, Indigenous versus non-Indigenous, because there is support for the voice across all of those divides. You know, in many ways, this is a very individual decision that people are making. And so, for many of us, this is about looking into our hearts and thinking about what kind of country we want. And one of the, the positives, I think, from in, in many negatives, in many very divisive conversations that have been had over recent months and weeks, is that stories of truth are emerging. We still have a long way to go, but we are having some very honest conversations about our past, about our present, and about the kinds of country that we want to be. And I think that's a real positive. The other positive, Anna Greta, that I took away from what Rebecca was saying is that so many of the participants in her focus groups have been incredibly respectful about what 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want. And that is such an important thing. You know, what Rebecca said was that, that so many people are saying, well, we don't want to impose white solutions on Indigenous people because we know that's gone wrong and it is wrong. If we're starting to think that way as a nation, that is a positive thing. And if it's a yes vote on the 14th of October, then all of that positivity comes together to give us an incredibly positive pathway into our future. Mm, absolutely. And I, I know many of our listeners may feel like we do that on October the 14th, a yes vote will be an extraordinary, re- remarkable step towards the future of our country. But I know that throughout this process, the, the extraordinary experience of the referendum campaign, the, the impacts I have felt in my life, the remarkable privilege of listening to stories, the generosity and the love and kindness with which stories have been shared, particularly with Indigenous voices, will stay with me regardless of the results of the referendum on the 14th. Uh, it's been a remarkable shift. And Anna Greta, I would just add to that to our listeners, you know, we have had a number of episodes. I think we're at around 10 or 11 episodes on The Voice this year. Mm. They are all worth listening to. Mm. But if you don't have very much time and can listen to only two, listen to Catherine Little and Thomas Mayo. I think those two conversations have been absolutely remarkable and they will change the way you think about the country that we live in and the world that we occupy. Defining narratives. Listeners, this podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy, and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. We love to hear from our listeners. And the best way for other people to find out about the podcast is for you to be engaged on social media. So thank you. We love hearing from you, our audience, so please do reach out to us on the platform that once was Twitter at ANU Crawford or via email at policyforumpod at anu.edu.au and you will also find us on LinkedIn. Some of our listeners may have noticed that there was a little bit of background noise today that reflects one of the great joys of working from home where we're all juggling children and dogs and all the other things in the background. So apologies if there was a little bit of noise, but that's the real world. Our thanks, as always, to Hannah Scott for production and Darcy Brumpton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's it for us for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.